Thank you very much, and, and thanks very much for inviting me uh, to be part of this really exciting and, I think, necessary uh, series. Um, this is a very different kind of presentation in that uh, not only is the sort of source of the data, the information, quite different to the sort of work that Vicky's been doing recently, um, but it's also, I, I'm, I'm trying to do something which is also quite provocative in another sense. Um, provocative perhaps in the sense that I want to see if I can help us think about, um, about widening participation in a, in a sort of critical and distanced way. Uh, to look at the, in a sense to look at the, the problems it's trying to tackle um, a little bit. Um, and I hope that, that in doing that it not only helps us when we evaluate in the sort of way that, 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 that um, we were talking about earlier, but, but that it also helps us feel a bit better about what we do manage. So let's see, let's see how that goes. Um, I'll start with these provocative questions. <coughs> First of all, if widening participation is the answer, what's the question? Secondly, what, what concepts, models of the person, models of behaviour, images of success, assumptions, measurements, etc., are common in WP policy and practice? Uh, and why those? Um, Penny was talking about discourses earlier, and that's the kind of point I'm trying to raise here, um, and we'll come back to it shortly. Thirdly, how coherent are these? these models of the person, I images of success, models of behaviour. How coherent are they? It's, it's actually quite frightening. If you look at some of the research on the slightly earlier phase of widening participation activity, if you look at AIM Higher, for example, um, uh, there's, there's an excellent paper which I, in, in a list of references at the end of my slides by Neil Harrison looking at the way AIM Higher was judged with what statistic. Um, if you look at, at some other older work that I'm very fond of, um, McKagan Adnett's work on access agreements and the way that the requirements were differentially interpreted by different kinds of university, you, 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 you certainly you can't be uh, left in any doubt that there's immense variety in what people think they're doing or trying, what they're trying to do in the name of WP. It's incredibly diverse. So, you know, maybe that's a good thing, but maybe it's not such a good thing if we're trying to make judgments about whether it's successful. Um, it's, it makes it all that much more difficult. And finally, how does HE participation in general, and WP in particular, look from a sociological viewpoint? So, uh, I hope these are sort of reasonably challenging uh, questions, especially for people if, if, if they're involved in what we might call the WP industry. Uh, either at an institutional level or in other bodies. Um, I want to also stress that to ask sociological questions about WP, we have to think for a moment epistemologically. Now, uh, I'm not going to unpack that phrase completely and give you a philosophy lesson on knowledge. I'm going to do it much more in a much more shorthand and straightforward manner. Think about traffic and driving in traffic. Think about 
the unit of analysis? Well, for some purposes, it's you in a car making decisions. But if you want to understand traffic flows, or the lack of traffic flows, actually, <coughs> looking at you in a car making decisions isn't very useful. It really isn't. It's almost irrelevant. Because you need to look at flows, and you need to look at net behaviour, and you need to look at waves, actually. They, there's a whole language for, amongst people that do this stuff, and they use some very interesting and complex statistical models to do so. Um, and yet, in the popular imagination, these are pretty much the same thing. Driving a car and being in traffic are part of the same ballpark. They're part of the same thing to be explained. Even more uh, to the point, we all know that you know water's got some hydrogen and oxygen molecules in it, and they're in the same proportion all the time. But how useless is that if you're trying to understand things like the force in a standing wave. Here's a picture of the seven bore, which comes around every now and again, and some people get their surfboards out and go for miles up through Gloucestershire, riding it. Now, that, that's water, but clearly there's a completely different set of understandings to, to operate with this water efficiently than there is with water at the molecular level. That might sound very obvious to you, but it, it's, it's strange how, in things like popular understandings of widening participation, it seems to me, the unit of analysis gets regularly confused and elided at different levels. So, what's the unit of analysis? Well, I think I might argue that in Western and strongly ang Anglo-Saxon-influenced cultures, there are some dominant units of analysis and some notions of how to explain the world and they tend to be <coughs> psychological in the individualistic sense they tend to be economistic that's very very popular especially amongst people who think about policy and they tend to be common sense drawing upon those and these things all stress the individual and his or her actions they're, they're predominantly individual level explanations I think, making a very basic sociological point, I'd say whilst individuals are always important, an individualistic lens is not the only way, and always not always the best way to understand the social world. Um, and this is not a new idea. It goes back to at least John Donne uh, in 1624, but it goes back a lot further than that too. Um, that, that we are inherently um, acting socially and and then affecting the social world when we act as well. Even emotions are produced in a social setting, or certainly experienced in a social setting. Well, in education trajectories, that is, if we try to understand what's happening when young people go through, higher, go through the education system, and some of them end up in higher education, well, some of the things that are happening uh, uh, are these sorts of things <coughs> looked at sociologically. Of course they're all individuals and they're all different and they're all making decisions, but that in a sense isn't the point at the moment. The point is that, for example, there are emotional geographies of elite schooling or the production of a sense of entitlement. And I'm just choosing some recent work on elite schools, uh, very close work with 
uh, looking at the way in which young people socialised, what, what they come to understand about themselves and the world. Uh, again, these are all in the list of references at the end. But, you know, an emotional geography of elite schooling is quite a neat phrase. What it refers to is a certain sense of belonging which is consciously nurtured for some children, not others, depending on the situation that they're in, and which leads them to a certain view of their prospects and certain expectations, uh, almost, or well, largely, without thinking. You know? the, uh, suddenly, the individualised, sort of psychologistic definition between conscious and unconscious isn't important because of what, as it were, what cultural expectations some young people swim in. Um, we might look, too, at work, very well-known work, including one example on here from Stephen Ball, but of course there's lots of this. Work which looks at school choice, league tables, inspections, marketization, and so on in secondary education, um, which demonstrates pretty convincingly that depending on their background, some, some families are particularly adept at managing things like school choice, and particularly good at getting the most out of such a system other families less so and of course you know right-wing political thinking interprets that as a sort of natural order in a, in a if you like a sort of pseudo Darwinist kind of way um, but that is a very robust uh, insight coming from a lot of work and there's another whole set of work uh, and this coming through more again recently actually in the sociology of education um, about parenting and especially the role of mothers um, and for example um, famous American work Annette Leroux talks about um, some families engaging in concerted cultivation a very very conscious process of preparing young people for success in other families that's less important um, other things come to the fore and this has nothing to do with that, how much people value education it's to do with assumptions about child-rearing and how they, how they differ. And then on this list I'd finally point to some other recent work on how people use information and what information is available to them um, in making choices, particularly in the world of education but also health choices, um, and work on self-marketing. Very, very interesting that, that, that schools, particularly secondary schools, and I'm not just talking about sort of private versus public here, but schools vary enormously in how prospectively they deal with the idea of self-marketing. Uh, it can terribly backfire. You know, a simple example would be a school that makes everybody a prefect so that they can put it in their personal statement. Um, well, you know, sounds like a good idea until on the ground being a prefect doesn't mean anything anymore at all, in fact, uh, can lead to, uh, to, to other, other difficulties. And there was, uh, there was a very famous, I don't know if you've come across this, there was a very famous um, piece of work looking at personal statements um, which um, uh, looked at plagiarism across them, um, looking back at UCAS entries, and in fact it went, went back quite a way, although this has only recently been published again. This phrase, 
appeared in 234 applications to the University and Colleges Admission Service in 2007. The phrase was, ever since I accidentally burnt holes in my pyjamas <laughs> after experimenting with a chemistry set on my eighth birthday, I have always had a passion for science. <laughs> so, you know, that's an extreme case of, um, of shared self-marketing. In fact, it's an indicator of, um, of just how... Uh, how st high the stakes are actually um, and what lengths people will go to especially with easily sourced ideas on the internet and finally I'm going to get on to some data in a minute and an analysis from a project that I think is helpful for thinking through these things but I do want to say you know remind us that we need to ask is, is HE a social good that's underpinning work in WP isn't it the idea that HE is at least good for something, um, maybe it's a social good, maybe it's a source of advantage and fairness, maybe it's a source of nurturing talent or nurturing the efficiency and productivity of UK PLC uh, and so on, maybe it's about increasing social inequality as well though, um, maybe WP is an attempt to increase equality, so an expectation that education can remedy rampant inequality, is that what underpins people's actions in WP, a wish, a wish to do something about that. Um, of course, institutions also engage in uh, conforming to the expectations placed upon them, uh, which is another reason they do things in this area. You may well have come across um, this uh, recent, last year, a uh, report again from Milburn, or at least Milburn, Alan Milburn chaired the uh, committee the Commission, um, our examination of who gets the top jobs in Britain today found elitism so stark that it could be called social engineering. Um, and the Commission has high hopes for uh, rethinking that, for changing it, um, and for doing something about it. Um, this is a, a, a brief quote from that report. Um, I won't read it all out, but you get the gist. Britain's elite formed on the playing fields of independent schools. 71% of senior judges, 62% of senior armed forces officers, and so on, and so on, and so on. The usual story, Britain's elite finished in Oxbridge. 75% of senior judges, 59% of the cabinet, 57% of permanent secretaries. I could go on with this audience. <laughs> I don't need to go on, I'm sure. Um, is this what we're trying to do something about? You know? Really? Are we trying to do something about this when we act in the realm of WP? Because if we are trying to do something about that, then maybe using polar data, using you know the former measures of um, success of WP or not, is kind of looking in the wrong place. It's a bit too crude, a bit too, a bit too sort of um, well. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's a bit too partial. I want to tell you a bit about a research project that got me close to pra the practices of people like me. This was a study of white middle-class parents who deliberately chose ordinary or low-performing secondary schools. So there are a very interesting subset of the people we already know do very well 
in conditions of increased marketisation in secondary education and who do very well in the university sector as well. So um, what I want to say is a few things about, is about a, a few things about this group and their engagement with schools which incidentally led to enormous success with entry to, to, to universities uh, as well. So a little bit of uh, context about the study. Um, it was uh, looking at then a cross-section of against the grain examples of school choice. Against the grain because school choice isn't supposed to work like that. There's information, league tables and inspection reports, and you're supposed to, you know, if you've got choice, you're supposed to choose the best on pretty much on a unilinear scale. These parents had definitely not done that. Um, they'd chosen schools that appealed to them for other reasons. And furthermore, we got very close to these people in that we interviewed the parents um, and the children in 125 households in three cities, one of which was London. There's a, there's a book which uh, you saw a picture of earlier um, that reports the project and lot, quite a lot of um, a number of journal articles as well. What were they like? Well, these against the grain choosers were highly educated. They were usually, um, they had a degree. 85% of them were educated to degree, to degree level and a quarter of those had a postgraduate qualification. About 80% of them were incomers, that is they'd moved recently to the area where they now lived. So quite mobile in that sense as well. They usually, they usually worked in public sector, at least one of them, in 70% of cases, at least one of them worked in the public sector. And they got involved in schools, big time. There were lots of school governors in this group. Um, lots and lots of people um, doing that sort of thing, getting involved in PTAs and so on. One of the big surprises for us was that very few of them had strong political or welfareist kind of motivations for choosing a low-performing ordinary school. Um, there were one or two that did, but most did not. Much more common, much more common, by far the most common pattern, was that these families, these parents, were securing what they saw as educational breadth. They were securing diversity, they were securing um, a multicultural educational environment for their children and avoiding the narrowness that many of them had experienced in their own social narrowness that they experienced in their own schooling. Um, the analysis also points to the idea very strongly that there was social mix as a result. These young people were in, were in schools where there was a high mix in terms of social class background and ethnicity, but there wasn't much social mixing. That is, they remained separate, even though they were in the same schools. might come back to a couple of those points, but I wanted to tell you, too, about uh, what happened to these young children in schooling. Ne nearly all of them were selected for extra resources inside the schools um, in the form of gifted and talented schemes. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's, it was, um, it was a, a, a sort of Tony Blair era initiative which um, got extra resources into schools um, 
was seen by some as a sort of an attempt to, to help schools hang on to higher, potentially higher performing students that might otherwise, in a marketised system, leave and go somewhere else um, and, and skew the, uh, the, the uh, composition of schools. But that, that was uh, almost universal. Um, a, lot, a lot of our analysis turned out to be about this mutual affinity between the needs of schools and the needs of these parents. So we found head teachers um, who could name straight away, you know, the five middle class students in their GCSE year or in their A-level or in their AS year, whatever it might be. I'm saying five because that was quite a common, common number across the schools. Um, straight away they knew who they were and they were very, very keen to hang on to them. They knew that they might leave and they were very keen to hang on to them. And the reason they're keen to hang on to them is because, as we all know, in a sort of... the way that sociological insight you know, drifts into general public consciousness, we all know that those kids are more likely than kids in general to do well and then go to university. And if you're running a secondary school, that's going to be pretty high on your agenda. So, so we've got this going on, a, a mutual affinity between the needs of schools and the needs of the parents. What, are the, what do I mean by the needs of these parents? Well, the needs of these parents are for their children to undergo this breadth that's been chosen as the educational project, but not do badly. Do quite well, actually, in terms of um, their, um, their academic credentials, if nothing else. And there was a lovely example, there were many examples, but one of them, a lovely example of a drama A-level being kept open for one student and uh, we were joking in the team that this student would have got very good at soliloquies <laughs> because <laughs> what do you do in drama on your own you know in fact in reality the teachers used to come and sort of um, get involved for, for, for fun so so um, there was some sort of drama group operating but a very unusual one um, <clears throat> our analysis also tries to unpack what's going on in terms of the parents rejecting mainstream thinking. So, so these parents are rejecting league table thinking in choosing the secondary school. They're saying, well, of course there are league tables and of course there are inspections, but we all know, they, they would say, that that largely reflects the intake. Uh, it doesn't tell you much at all, if anything, about the quality of the school. So not interested in league tables, too crude. Um, furthermore, though, and, and sort of the technical term we use for this derived from Bourdieu is misrecognition. They are very convinced and very confident of their own children's capacity to withstand the schooling. Or perhaps, <laughs> some of them use that word, uh, perhaps I should be a little bit less uh, pejorative there and say they're very confident that their child was so bright and would survive in any school. Um, and brightness comes through time and again in the interviews. We, we, we had very long interviews with these parents. We analysed you know, that data very carefully. We looked out for things that kept cropping up that we weren't directly asking about um, and, and cast a sort of psychosocial net over that data a little bit. And, um, and it's very, very clear that that these parents 
are of the view that the children concerned are bright, special, different, extra, um, and that that is vital in their in their schooling and their and how well they do. One of our overall explanations um, arrives at the metaphor of risky investment, and um, you know it's a fairly simple idea, of course, that if you if you've got ten pounds to invest, you know you can put it somewhere really safe and get sort of, if you're lucky, a quarter of a percent interest on it. Or you can put it somewhere really risky and get, you know, 10%. Um, that seemed, at least at a crude level, quite a useful metaphor for how schooling was seen collectively by these parents. Remember, I'm, I'm not blaming them, okay? Remember the molecule of water and the wave, the individual driver and the traffic. I'm not blaming them. I'm seeking to understand their actions at a sociological level. And what their actions tell us at a sociological level is that, is that parents will um, monitor very closely their investment, look at it every day, keep their eye on it, see if it's going down, intervene when it looks like there's trouble, because they know the teachers, they're on the governors, they know a lot about the school, they can phone up the head, they're very confident, and if it all goes terribly pear-shaped, they can always pull out go somewhere else. So, so it's a very useful metaphor for the way in which some secondary schools and some parents interact and engage with a view to educational success. The final point in this rather brief tour of some of our analysis is, is the fact that it paid off. So there was very high success in terms of conventional achievements, especially A-level. Uh, and especially university entrants. If you look at all the kids, they're all different ages, of course, but about 117 of them were post-18 by the time we finished. Um, so kids we know about include 117 who'd finished you know, schooling and gone on to do other things. Of that 117, eight were in Oxbridge. Only two didn't go to university. And of the others... Most of them were in uh, universities that are selective, rather than recruiting, if you use that crude, crude division. Okay, so the strategy paid off. I think, I think the, the, the thing to concentrate on, I've kind of summarised that really, um, the thing to concentrate on here um, is whether or not such an analysis and such a perspective on the educational world is helpful if you are, say, evaluating WP or trying to conceive of what WP should be, which, of course, is a first, the first task, and I've already pointed out that it's incredibly diverse. Um, is this useful? Well, I, I think it is. I think it is, and I think it's practical, actually, of, of immense practical use. Um, and it's, it's partly the way in which one, I think one continually needs to question the reduction of HE entry to questions of individual aspiration and information. I don't doubt that aspiration and information are important. Of course they are. But the reduction of the patterns and the inequalities 
to those factors is, I think, highly troubling. And I think it's in a very practical thing to point out when one can that that is going on and to challenge it. So some people will need reminding that even higher education is not some sort of neutral, benign process that functions above and beyond the tram lines of social inequality. Sadly, higher education is full of people who do think that higher education is somehow above and beyond and benign. They don't see themselves as merchants of inequality. And yet, you know, maybe individually they're very nice people. Of course they are. I work with them. I know them. That's not the point. It's not the point whether they're nasty or misguided individually. The point is that their net actions reproduce inequality. In fact, sometimes increase it. Um, secondly, different kinds of higher education have quite different socio-economic student body compositions, as we've been hearing, and status differs too. I have a PhD student just coming to the, towards the end of his PhD, and he wanted to study at close quarters, in a qualitative way, the experience of black uh, British men in elite, in elite universities. And he... When, he first, when we first discussed it with him, he said, oh, I'm really, I'm really troubled about the sample. He said, how am I going to sample? He comes from America, okay? He comes from America. He said, how am I going to sample? It's going to be really difficult. So I said, well, hold your horses on that, you know. Let's have a look. And at the time, the, the Lamy uh, debate was just raging. <laughs> Let's have a look and see who might, you know, you might be able to contact to be involved in your study. And I have to say, you know, now that he's at the end of his field work and he's writing up a uh, very interesting study, um, I think he's managed to net almost all of the black student, male students in elite universities in his qualitative study. In other words, he has a sample of nearly 100%. And needn't worry about that. <laughs> You know, it's got other things to worry about, but not that. Um, so, you know, I think, I mean, if you look at, if you look too at the, um, the persistence of the binary line, um, the way in which the post-92 sector has historically been the, the sector to deal with the mature students, increased numbers of those to deal with access courses much more than the pre-92 sector, so that we can all say comfortably, well, higher education has got a lot of mature students in it, hasn't it? Uh, and isn't it brilliant? Um, you know, that's not, it's not as simple as that. Higher education is a positional good. It makes a lot of difference. It's made a lot of difference to my career that my first degree was from what is now a Russell Group University. Um, and I was very lucky to get in there. You know, that was very sort of on-the-ground WP going on there with a group of staff flouting the rules, basically, to get mature students in uh, at the time. So, you know, I think, I, I think the, um, the point I'm trying to make here is that, is that when we're thinking about WP actions and the measurement of WP, we must not lose sight of the, of the fact that, that universities are not all the same and that they carry vastly different meanings, uh, depending on which ones they are, for the individual and their credentials. It's no use pretending that that's not there or, or simply wishing it wasn't. It's there. Thirdly, it's important to disentangle institutional interests from a wish to help people, and one can often cloud the other. Uh, one, of, one of the things I 
sort of one of the annoying habits I have as a sociologist is to try and try and work out how professional interests and institutional interests are reflected in in even the most heartfelt motives of individuals um, and where they overlay where they overlap where they contest um, and I think and this is a dilemma everywhere isn't it? it's a dilemma for social workers as well of course um, but we do I, I think we do need to ask you know if we're doing this stuff called WP to what extent is it driven by something we think we can change something we think we can act upon to what extent is it driven by institutional needs to show we're doing something or tick boxes or or change change the uh, statistics and I suppose a sort of th final thought on this and it's you know I know I'm sort of sailing against the wind here of um, or, or at least tacking uh, very close to the wind um, in that it's very possible, it's very easy to get disillusioned once you, once you start looking at the size of the problem. You know, once you look at the history and the embeddedness of forms of social inequality, um, you might think, oh, I'll, I'll give up. So it, it's very um, important, I think, not to, not to be sort of overwhelmed by that. I would argue it's helpful to keep our work in proportion, though, to celebrate our successes, which will be there, um, knowing that we're up against so much more than disparities in young people's aspirations or in the information they have or in their capacities for decision-making. It's so much more than that. So those are some thoughts. And when you get the slides, if you want to follow up any of the things uh, that I've mentioned, uh, they're in, listed at the, at the end. Um, so a bit of gallop, but that's what I wanted to say.